Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, I am so excited because one of my oldest friends, Donald Farmer, is on the show with me. Donald is someone very special to me because he helped me through a really rough time and a really rough breakup. I still remember when he um, met with me and he gave me a copy of Nonviolent Communications. That's something that I really think a lot of us can benefit from. So I specifically wanted to bring Donald to the show and have him introduce himself as well as talk about empathy and other large topics that we care about. So welcome, Donald. Oh, thank you so much to be to, to be on the show. It's, uh, it's exciting for me too, and it's great to chat you with you again. Yeah, absolutely. So could you catch us up a little bit with what you're doing recently? It's been like probably, what, 10 years since we last met yeah, in person? I think that's right, yeah. So, um, well, I was working at Microsoft, of course, and that was, uh, that's exciting. That's a, that's a good place to work. I, I enjoyed my time there. And then I went to to work for a Swedish company called Click, um, also a technology company building data analytics software, which is what I do. And and that was fun. I got to work with, you know, a lot of people in Sweden and spend a lot of time in that kind of fascinating culture and, and working globally with their customers. So I kind of love that. And then about four years ago, I became independent. And now I'm an independent advisor. And, and I do all sorts of weird things as an independent advisor. I, I advise a, a fashion um, incubator in Singapore on, on innovation mm -hmm. strategy, which if you know my fashion sense would be <laughs> a bit ridiculous. Um, but I, I also advise you know, big companies like Microsoft and Oracle and, and small companies who are just starting up. So I get a lot of fun advising people and um, I'm enjoying it very much, I have to say. Yeah, I bet. So you have so much experience because I remember when I was at Microsoft, you were already somebody that we all looked up to as, you know, the guy, the BI, you were known as the BI guy for Microsoft, like that's right. how big you are when I was in SQL Server team. And so I know that you've been in the industry for a long time. And recently we were catching up on empathy and, and maybe the fact that we could all use more of it, especially in the large corporation, in tech, et cetera. I'd love to hear your perspective because our group of people have mostly suffered a lot of trauma, right? And then as we experience work life, there's also a lot of things that can trigger us. Like speaking for myself personally, it can be hard to handle when we have various buttons that were formed because of how we were um, maybe raised as we were kids or other relationships. So love to just kind of hear your thoughts on that. You know, our work life is an extraordinary um, artifact that human beings have created over a couple of hundred years since the uh, industrial revolution. Before then, there would have been no distinction between your work and your life. You, know, you worked and you, you, your work was your life in the sense that you lived on a farm and you worked on the farm, or if you were in a city and you were a servant or you were a, a lawyer or whatever, you didn't really make a distinction between your life and the work that you did. It was just that was just your way of, of, of getting by, your way of living. And we've created this artificial world in which we have work and, and life, and we talk about the balance between them. And I mean, very strange things happen when we talk about work life. So, for example, the number of times I've heard people say that, you know, your work can call you up at any time. Can it, it's okay for work to run over into your private life? You know, give up your weekend for your job. You know, in the evening, it's okay to uh, you know to, to to abandon some of your personal time to do some work. And yet, it's never the other way around. It's not okay you know, to take two three days off for your personal stuff. That that's seen as a failure. That's seen as a weakness. And yet, it's okay yeah, I... for. 
<laughs> you know, this is so on point because I remember even at Microsoft, there were some people that prefer to send emails late at night or in the weekend to kind of even to leave an impression, right? A lot of us work really hard, but there's some people that deliberately do that just to show that they work all the time. There's no boundaries. <laughs> there is that. Yes. Yeah, I know. And that's a that, that's a, such a strange attitude. And so, so what's this got to do with my work? Well, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is enabling technology to work for people rather than the other way around. Our technology should enable us to do, to live better lives, to do more things, to live better lives, rather than being something that enslaves us. Um, and I say that that's a very strong word, and I know it's a very sort of uh, triggering word for people, but I, but I actually believe that we become um, enthralled to technology, which then ties us into our work in a way that never happened before. And it's bad enough having a job which intrudes on your life, but when your job involves a technology that then starts to intrude on your life, um, I think it's very dangerous. And this has been recognized, you know, in, in France, there are laws that say, you know, your company can't mail you without your permission outside working hours. And, um, and even then, there, there are kind of core hours where your company just can't contact you unless you're on a special kind of maintenance contract, for, or for example. And, and why not? You know, why can't we create this, um, this sort of sense that our, 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 our lives are really what matter and work is just part of that? Hmm, yeah, that's revolutionary. I think we all talk about that as the ideal, but I personally find it very hard to compartmentalize work. So even when I'm on, you know, sadly speaking, even when I'm on vacation, I'm thinking about work. It's always, there's always something more that I can do and companies will happily take whatever time and energy you have to give to them, right? Because you're paid on a fixed amount. The more you do, the happier they are. And everybody's trying to buy for the, the better rating, the next promotion, et cetera, just to not fall behind. It feels like we're on this nonstop wheel that just goes faster and faster and faster, and we can't stop. Indeed, yeah. And, and, and I have to... Um... I have to say that I, I don't think the answer is to compartmentalize in the sense that you put kind of work in a box, because I think it's useful to have work that you're interested in and that is that is part of your life. But what I what I do mean is that it, it shouldn't be a part of your life that runs the other part of your life. It shouldn't be the driving force of your life. Your life has a purpose, which is not work. Work enables you to fulfill your purpose. Um, so I want to see work kind of put in its place, if you like, not necessarily put in a box, but put in its place, put in a place where we can have a more balanced, empathetic and humane attitude to each other without work being this barrier that gets in the way of us, which it does too often. That's super interesting. So how exactly do you do that? Because I think the listeners are really interested in, you know, me too, right? How do you do that? Well, something that's really interesting to me is is design. Um, I had the great opportunity to be a kind of to, to work on innovation and design with some wonderful teams um, who thought very deeply about, you know, how we work with technology on a daily basis. And part of this was trying to understand it with with really deeply empathetic listening why people are using technologies and and what they're for. And one of the things that comes out of that when you start really listening to people and you start observing them closely is that our expectations of technology are sometimes uh, very different from, from reality. And I'll give you an example of this. If you go into a restaurant 
and you're sitting at, well, if you can go into restaurants anymore, you know, you're sitting in a restaurant and uh, somebody's cell phone goes off and they start a conversation. Um, I would say that most people think that it's young people, it's youngsters, it's at least the millennial generation and younger who are absolutely tied to their smartphones and their smartphones run their lives. But actually, there's an older generation, my generation, a bit of. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting called out, Donald. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, you know, there's an older generation, and actually, they are ones who are even more stuck with the technology because they, for one thing, they don't know how to change the defaults on their phones. They very often don't know how to set them on silent. So you hear the Nokia ringtone, you know, and you know it's not. That's a right. Yeah. Um, and and not only that, they also kind of caught up with this idea that you must answer your phone. And I look at my son and his wife who are, you know, generation younger than me in the way they use their phones. Um, it's actually the, the, the technology enables them. Sure, they might be spending 20 hours a day on them, but they're enabled by the technology rather than enthralled to it. And that's partly because many of these technologies are targeted at their generation and they're being empathetically designed for them. So I think this idea that I think, by the way, that we, we, we tend to, to look at the younger generation, my generation, and, and an older generation certainly do tend to look at the younger generations in completely the wrong way. We think of them as being enthralled to technology when actually they're much more in control of their technology. We think of them as having a low attention span when actually their attention span is extraordinary because they can, you know, my son, when he was 10, read the entire Harry Potter book in one sitting, which I certainly couldn't have done, you know. Um, <laughs> They have great attention spans if, if they have the right thing to pay attention to. And then mm -hmm. we think of them, um, we think of these younger generations as being, you know, sort of enthralled to technology. They have a low, a low attention span. And then we think of them as being kind of lazy, which they clearly not. They work harder than, than my generation had to, 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 to make a living. Um, and so I think we, um, we also, by the way, think of them as being illiterate, which are, are, are less literate than we are, which is crazy because they, uh, they spend so long sending sending text messages that they probably um, write more words than I've ever done in my life. You know, so we have to look at these things through a different lens, and that's the lens of empathy, rather than looking at it like how do we want them to be, how do they mm -hmm. want to be, and and when we look even just intergenerationally like that, we learn so much. And I, I what I want to see is technologies which look at people, learn from them, and then understand what they really want out of life and enable that. I see. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, that's a good answer. And I'm also curious in terms of the day to day work, right, working with people in tech or just in companies in general, what is a good way to, to use empathy at work? It certainly feels like there's a paucity of it. And people seem to be oftentimes buying for themselves, doing things that may not be of highest integrity, mm. just trying to get ahead. How do you advise someone who is maybe new to the workforce or struggling with perhaps a toxic boss, a, a bully at work, et cetera, how to handle those situations? There are far too many of those uh, situations. It's kind of shocking, really, when you, uh, when you think of how we've been able to, to advance so many aspects of our lives, and yet we're still stuck with these kind of toxic environments. And I think there's I'm going to suggest there's three things we can do. Um, one is, of course, we can find the right channel to actually talk about it, which may be inside work or outside work. It's always good if it's inside work. If there's 
And it's very rarely HR, I'm afraid to say. You know, people think, oh, I'll go to the HR department. But, you know, HR are often very sympathetic, but often also tied by a, by a set of rules and regulations. HR are more there to ensure that things run in a well-governed and fair way, rather than actually caring that much about the culture. Yeah, um, that I agree. The experience that I've seen personally, as well as talking to other people in large companies, is that HR works for whoever pays their salary, right? Which is the company itself. Well, exactly. And so, so you know. that's your priority, protecting the company from lawsuit. So whether that's conforming to regulations or trying to make the incident go away, you might see a lot of that versus actual justice. Exactly so. I mean, that's the that it, as you say, that's their in a sense their motivation. And culture, you can't create culture just by having processes. I remember reading somewhere that Enron had you know like a two hundred page ethics manual that didn't make Enron an ethical company because the culture wasn't wasn't ethical. So you right. say you have to find the right channels to talk about that. But this this may not be internal to the company. It may be external. Maybe with friends. Maybe with the therapist. Maybe with with. Um, Somebody who works in a similar business or or or, or has you know similar experiences, uh, a mentor is always very very helpful, and sometimes a mentor within the company can be extremely helpful um, because they also understand the the work environment and can can help you through that. I was I was helped enormously at Microsoft by an excellent mentor. Um, mm -hmm. It was very empathetic. So so I think you know finding that channel is good. I think the the second thing that you can do is to find um, the the way of expressing yourself that enables you to be be very clear about what's wrong and very clear about what you need um, without being defensive. And I, I think businesses in general, when I say that as, as if you know business is an entity, but businesses in general tend to pounce upon weak, what they see as weaknesses and it's you know everybody i think is who's a sensitive person has experienced this in business that your sensitivity your your kindness is seen as a weakness far too often yeah mm -hmm. yes, um, that's true explicitly so in some cases you know you're 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 too much of a nice guy you know people say this to me and i, and I think oh, God, I can't be. if that if you put that on my gravestone i'd be very happy yeah I remember one of my Microsoft managers says, you know, you may, here's my advice to you, never let them see you sweat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's destructive. So how can you do that? Well, we'll talk, maybe chat about this in a moment, but that's, that's part of where mm -hmm. I find the nonviolent communication very, very helpful as a way of expressing what I need and what I want and what I see without being defensive, while at the same time being clear that there's things that I need and want that, I, that I'm not getting. Um, so that, so there's, the, there, there's the finding the channel, there's the being able to communicate. The third thing, which is the, the tremendous kind of inner strength that you have, is be prepared to walk away. Be prepared to say no. Um, it's incredibly difficult. People find themselves supremely worried about things like money and I can't leave this job. And it's easy for me, who I'm comfortable now, I can, I can, I can give this advice. But there's times I haven't been. You know, I've, I've lived on food stamps in my life when I was, when mm -hmm. I was much younger and my, and my son was young. Um, but there's nothing will harm you more than being stuck in an environment just for the sake of staying there. 
It's, yeah. it's, it's extremely psychologically and emotionally damaging. And if you have it in your vocabulary that I can walk away from this, even though it's going to be incredibly difficult, but actually the measure of how difficult it is, is the fact that I'm prepared to walk away. That's a kind of superpower that um, it's, it's difficult to take away from you. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because at the end of the day, we have to choose, right? It's not an easy choice, but if the choice comes to being abused more and right. soaking in it and eventually becoming more and more powerless and more and more helpless, and it eventually it does erode your self-confidence and making it even harder for you to lead. And it could cause all sorts of health problems, et cetera. At the end of the day, it's not worth it. There can You can always find another job, because I can relate to your story of being on food stamp. When I first came to this country at age 20, I, I didn't have any money. I didn't even have a green card. Right. So when I remind myself that if I could do it then, I could walk away from any company, money or no money. I, I'm a citizen now. I can go and buy groceries if I need to. I will not stay and then do things that it just does not sit with me morally or to my integrity. You know, it's, it's, it's great to hear you say that. And, and, and the truth is that once you've done it, in one context, you can do it in another. You've yes. walked away from a relationship. You, you you know you can walk away from work. You know, I mean, the old Gloria Gaynor song, I can survive, I will survive, is, is, is a cliche. But actually, once you know that you will survive, you become invincible at that point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, a, that's why I call it a superpower. Being able to say no is a tremendous superpower. Yeah, I think this is really resonating with me and I'm sure with our listeners, because some of us have been trapped in various abusive relationships. When we're kids, we're trapped, you know, over there is not a lot of options sometimes. But as adults, a lot of times I remember or I remind people that, hey, you're a grown up now. The door is not locked. The only thing that's holding you back is this fear that's in your mind. But once you start marching out, things the doors will open for you things will work out you just have to overcome the fear you have to overcome fear and you have to overcome guilt and the guilt comes from um, our society's attitude that somehow our weakness is something to be ashamed of people feel guilty about suffering i should be able to cope with this and there's that that guilt about not being able to cope that's that sense of inadequacy is um it's terrible. It's very destructive. I, and, you know, children carry this as well. Children learn to feel this sort of guilt that I must be different. There must be something wrong with me because this is happening to me. And um, we bring this into adulthood as well. And as I say, far too many of the dynamics in our work environment reinforce it. Right. And I think a lot of times the work dynamics, they put it on you as in you're not the one being abused. You're not getting the rating because... Um, you are, you have certain shortcomings, et cetera. So they put it on in a way on the victim. And then, so from the employee's perspective, a lot of times they're wondering, is it me? Should I just try harder? Should I try to please my manager or just bully more? And so they feel like if they walk, then it's surrendering. It's like, I am not good enough to make this work. But in fact, when, when I think about the different, the, what they call the four Fs, right? The fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, a lot of times we're locked into just one mechanism. In this case, mm-hmm. we refuse to flight, but this is the perfect example to say, I am worth it. I don't need to put up with this abuse. I can walk. And I think a lot of times we just forget that's an option. 
You know, there's there's um, there's really nothing more radical that you can do as a human being than not engaging with something, either walking away or just not taking part. And um, it, it's really revolutionary. Saying no is is such a revolutionary act. And you know, saying no to whatever it happens to be, you know, saying no to material things is tremendously powerful. Nothing could be more revolutionary in our society than not being a consumer in the way that society mm -hmm. wants us to be consumers. Um, nothing could be more radical in relationships and saying, no, I don't want a relationship. You know, that's um, right. whether it's an individual relationship or whether it's somebody being independent. Um, women have found this particularly over sort of the last 40 years, the ability to say, no, I don't want children, you know, which 40 years ago would have been thought almost, you know, uh, uh, as a crazy thing for women to say. And now people can yeah. say with, you know, absolute mm -hmm. clarity and certainty. And that's a radical thing. And there's a lot of people who think that's a terrible thing that women can say no. But um, the, the ability to say no is a tremendous power. It really is. Because the ability to say no is saying, I say no because I need to take care of my needs first versus saying yes to take care of your needs. And a lot of people feel guilty refusing other people's requests, right? So absolutely. I, and I've got to say, this is where the, the sort of nonviolent communication piece kind of comes into it. I should, I, you know, I, the way I would just describe it is the phrase nonviolent communication suggests it did come out of the peace movement. So it's, it, it does have its roots in, in, in being deliberately nonviolent. Sometimes it's called compassionate communication or non-conflicting communication. But a large part of it is identifying your needs. What do you actually need out of a situation? But also trying to identify what other people need and not trying to reconcile them but actually setting them up side by side, not against each other, but just side by side. So one of the, the, the important techniques is, first of all, to be able to disentangle the, the facts from our feelings about it, which is, is very difficult, um, because very often the language we use in relationships and in work is things like, uh, you make me unhappy, or, you know, you made me sad, you make me angry. We, we, we say that all the time. Right. Um, you can disentangle that and say, you do these things and I get angry. You do these things and I get sad. And what you've done by disentangling it that way, you've now created a gap between the action and the emotional effect. And in that gap is the secret to making sense of this and resolving it potentially. Because sure, you're doing these things, but maybe I don't have to get sad. Maybe I don't have to get angry. Maybe there's a way around that. And so you can take this and say, okay, here, here's what's happening. Here's what this person's doing or what's going on in the world. Here's my feelings about it. I'm sad, I'm angry as a result of these things. Here's what I need. Um, and perhaps that's the reason I'm not getting what I need. So it's the reason I'm sad or angry. And here's what I want. And seeing these four things laid out separately. Here's what's happening. Here's how I feel. Here's what I need. Here's what I want to happen. And also then reflecting that onto the opponent, if you like, in a nonviolent sense in the situation. Here's a situation that's occurring. Here's how I think, here's how I think you might feel. Not sure, but here I think you might feel. Here's what I think you need. Am I right? And here's what I think you might want. Am I right about that? And you don't need to resolve the problem. You don't even need to agree on things. 
but just seeing things laid out in that pattern can be tremendously helpful at disentangling all these emotional knots we get into because we make these these um, shortcuts. You make me angry as opposed to, you know, you make me angry because you forgot my birthday as opposed mm. to it was my birthday yesterday and you didn't do anything. I felt angry about that. Why? Because you know I need um, to be recognized as, as, as a person. You know I need to be, to, to be valued. And this has happened several times. What do I want? I want you to recognize me more. And I've now disentangled it rather than you forgot my birthday and you made me angry. Right. Is, I love that. Yeah. Because what you're doing is you're telling apart the fact from the story, right? The, the fact is this person forgot to give me, give me a gift. The story is this person must not care about me. They must not love me that much. Otherwise they would remember. That's right. a story. But a for all we know, story. something else might have happened. Right. Um, so we're making all these assumptions and we're also assuming how they feel. So, you know, I think you're disentangling the what actually happened, the fact and the story we tell us. And therefore, we have a feeling when we tell ourselves a story of them not caring about us. We feel really bad. But that is not inevitable. It really depends on the story itself, too. And we construct these stories, you know, um, and, and, you know, when, when you when you deconstruct this down into no, you forgot my birthday. It's not even that. It's, you know, it was my birthday yesterday. You didn't get me anything. You didn't mention anything. Mm -hmm. Maybe you didn't forget. Maybe there's something else going on. But, you know, that you can reduce it even further. The interesting thing is we, we do construct a story. Um, you know, something happens. We, we, we react to it. And then we start telling stories about it. But we, but we shortcut to the stories. And, That's and right. the stories then, we actually end up living our lives in fantasy, in stories that we tell ourselves rather than rooted in the reality of what happened and our needs and recognizing our feelings, we just shortcut to the stories. And I, you know, in the business context, I, I did some work with a wonderful team that I worked with in Canada, a sales team. I'm not really a salesperson. I know you're a great salesperson, but I cannot sell. <laughs> and they were worried about losing deals and things weren't going particularly well. And I sort of said to them, we need to disentangle this because I can see what's happening. You lose a deal and immediately you start telling yourself the story about, oh, I'm not going to meet my target. I'm not going to get a bonus. I'm not going to be able to pay the deposit on that apartment. My girlfriend's going to leave me. <laughs> you know, Right. Before yeah. The... What about catching the COVID, not getting health insurance, end up on the street and dying alone? Right. <laughs> gone there already, you know. Right. And, you, know, you know what happened? The customer signed with somebody else. That's mm. actually what happened. They haven't, in our case, it's software. So they haven't installed the software yet. And in three months' time, they might regret that software and they might want to come back to you and say, that didn't work out. I wish I'd gone with you guys. Um, you know, that exact story happened to me. So it does work out that way sometimes. They go somewhere else and they're like, you know, they don't treat me as nice as you do. So exactly. <laughs> you just never know. So I'd say to these people, stop living in the story. You know, try, mm -hmm. to, try to deconstruct it into the facts, into this kind of structure understand that this thing has happened you don't like it but you don't need to run away with the story at that point you say okay i don't like it um you know then what are the alternative routes that this story could take and then when you recognize that there's many alternate routes now you've got other paths of action you can phone them back in three months and see how it's going and it turns out they've been waiting for your call and sometimes you know not always in fact probably not even most of the time but 
there's always a possibility of an alternative story. And the stories that we build naturally as human beings are often the most fearful. They're based on our traumas. They're based on our fears because that's You're what we really right. dread. You know, we're like yes. moths drawn towards the flame. Yes, that's true. So it kind of ties back to your earlier story of is it to be okay with leaving any job because the story that people tell themselves when they don't leave a job is like, I need this job, otherwise I'll end up on the street. But if you tell an alternative story, which is I deserve better, I have skills, I can find another job where I'll be happier, then that person would leave. So that is ultimately in our control is the story we tell us ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you can always tell um, a different story. And, and to be fair, you know, we need to reinforce that if you find yourself stuck on a story, you find that you're, you know, you're drawn towards this kind of flame of your trauma to always, you know, to, 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 to be pessimistic. That's okay, too. That's part of who you are. Um, but then it turns out that's what you have to work on. Now you've found yeah. something to work with. So the problem isn't the, the losing sales. That's a very temporary problem. The problem right. is your trauma. And I, I've literally seen this happen. You know, people who get all tied up with their business, for example, and their business, whatever is happening in their business, whether it's succeeding or failing, and they actually haven't looked at where their, their hopes, their ambitions, and their fears are coming from. And they run headlong into this battle ill-equipped to cope with it because they haven't actually sat down and thought well why am i why is my mind always going there mm -hmm. and is there a way in which that's the problem i have to solve really because yeah. the sales problem can fix itself or go away or you know remain the same but your trauma needs to be dealt with absolutely and i hope that we could do another one in the future <laughs> look forward and to it i heard that you might be starting your own podcast soon too so i'm absolutely looking forward to that Great. Thank you so much.